and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm Julie Robner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're taping today on Thursday, October 29th at 10 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined via video conference by Joanne Cannon of Politico. Hi, everybody. Tammy Luby of CNN. Hello. And Anna Edney of Bloomberg News. Hi there. Later in this episode, we'll have our latest Bill of the Month interview with KHN's Anna Almandrala. It's about a patient who did everything we tell patients to do before an elective surgery and still got soaked with a very big bill. But first, the news on this last week before Election Day. Let us start with the impact of COVID-19 on the elections. Cases are going up, the stock market is going down, and the White House is in denial. Only one of those things is new, by the way. But let's start at the White House. Mark Meadows started off the week by telling Jake Tapper of CNN, quote, we're not going to control the pandemic. Now, judging from the context, I don't think he meant that as literally as it sounds, but it does sort of sum up the administration's approach to this, doesn't it? Yeah, I think they um, are counting at this point on vaccines and therapeutics, which was clear from when President Trump had COVID-19 and was able to get pretty much every therapeutic, whether it was authorized or not, to help him get better and came out kind of touting those. And I think they're relying on that, which is interesting because because even those aren't going to be 100% effective at helping control the virus in any way. Um, And so they're kind of banking everything on something that might not work as well as just if they just decided masks and social distancing were something they could support publicly. It just it, it seems so odd that the administration is almost sort of the official line is it's going away really just look over here, don't look over there. Former President Obama had a great line in one of his very uh, targeted speeches at the president this week that said that um, President Trump is jealous of COVID's media coverage. Well, President Trump's been really talking about how the media is just focused on all the negative about COVID. And I'm not, I'm not sure what positive story I would write if I had the chance. So He's tweeted and said over and over again that on November 4th, in other words, the day after the election, we won't hear about it anymore. The, the media will stop covering COVID, COVID, COVID. I mean, there are a lot of jokes about it. It sounds like the Brady Bunch, you know, COVID, COVID, COVID. But he's, it's not one comment. He's, this is his closing message for the campaign. Right. And that, I mean, and that's why I'm bringing it up, not just not to beat up on the White House, but the idea that this actually is the administration's policy at this point is to basically hope to get treatments and vaccines. And in the meantime, pretend it's not there. I mean, meanwhile, five of Vice President Pence's aides, including his chief of staff, Mark Short, have tested positive for COVID-19. Under CDC guidelines, Pence is a close contact of Short and should be quarantining for 14 days. But Pence has apparently been deemed essential and is continuing with campaigning at sometimes maskless uh, or at least mask minimal events. Can someone explain to me how the vice president is, is quote unquote, an essential employee? That's not really what essential means, is it? It's essential if the White House decided it's essential. And that's basically what happened. And he's also this this travel he's doing is in his campaign capacity. It's not even really in his vice presidencying capacity. You know, they are trying to create somewhat of a cocoon around him as he travels. That that may be too strong a word. I mean, fewer people are traveling with him. They are keeping him at some distance. 
So they're not in a, they're not sending him out into a crowd to shake hands without a mask or hand sanitizer, but anybody else would be told to stay home for 14 days or at least 10 days. He is being tested, but testing alone, as we've learned with the president, is not enough. So, and he is wearing a mask, but not all the people he's around right, are always right. wearing a I mean, mask. Pence compared to Trump has been more of a pro-mask. It's not that he's been consistent or always has one, um, but he has been much more vigilant is probably too strong a word, but he has not been a, a mask denier. But still, he's traveling all over the country when he, in fact, may have been exposed. Well, he, he certainly was a contact until 10 to 14 days go by. The tests don't tell you everything you need to know. Well, he did end up skipping the ceremony for Amy Coney Barrett on That wouldn't Monday. have looked really good. <laughs> the irony around this whole thing, since the, the announcement of uh, nominee Barrett is now considered a super spreader event. And there were a number of senators who didn't come to the, I, I guess, was that the swearing in or was that just a little celebration of the, the Senate vote to confirm her? But there's apparently a two step swearing in that Trump did administer some kind of swearing in. But that's I think then I think there's another one at the court. Yes, there was there was a formal one the next day. And even then, some of the justices didn't come in, in recognition of the fact that things are not normal right well now. i think it's telling that mcconnell has not gone to the white house for months because he's concerned about the protocols yeah it was i think it was more telling that he'd said that yeah. <laughs> he was able to i mean that was that was mcconnell being you know very he doesn't say things publicly unless he has a reason to and when he sort of said that in his estimation they really hadn't been careful enough so he hadn't been going was was kind of um, since early august uh, yeah. Well, it's all, that's also interesting. If you watch any Senate vote, you're seeing masks, but we're not seeing like social distancing or anything like that. So not that that's less careful than the White House, certainly, but it seems like everybody's maybe dropping the ball a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I see that in sort of my daily life about, you know, when I'm at places where everybody's masked, but it's like, you're standing too close, move back. Right. <laughs> people just sort of, they get, you get comfortable and then you start to move in and like, don't get comfortable people. All right. Well, one more in the White House. Um, one, one possible explanation for all of this comes by a press release from the White House Science Office that lists the president's accomplishments over these past four years, counting among them, quote, ending the pandemic. I would ask who believes this stuff, but you only have to watch a few interviews with Trump supporters to see that they do. So this is a serious question. Even if Trump loses, what does it mean going forward to American politics that politicians can lie, provably lie, and still have enough people who believe them to win public office. I mean, we, as we know, we have a QAnon uh, believer who's likely to, to join the, the House of Representatives. This, I mean, politicians have always bent the truth. That's not, that's nothing new. That's why we have fact checkers. But the idea that we now have a group of politicians who can say things that you can demonstrate fairly quickly are not the case. And yet you go out and talk to, to, you know, members of the tribe, if you will, who just say, well, he said he would do it. So he will, or he said it. So, so it is. I just, I sort of worry going forward what this all means to, to our Republic. Well, I think social media has given rise to the ability to push these things. So many people are scrolling and looking at headlines and not even clicking on anything um, and believing what people say about the description of an article when that's not even the truth. And so people aren't just tuning into your regular you know, news station or um, reading a, a paper or a local paper. They're, they're scrolling for exactly the things that they want to read, you know, confirmation bias, obviously, is very strong. And it'll be interesting to see as you have a lot of the younger generation, like not getting on Facebook. 
Facebook anymore and things like that? Will that help at all? Or will there just be something new that crops up that takes the place of that? And I think, you know, you saw Twitter actually start banning the Hunter Biden story um, that the New York Post did. And so will social media start stepping up at all? Um, you know, I don't think we've seen anything really much from Facebook, but um, that was an interesting move on Twitter's part. Twitter is also requiring you to to click on a story right. before you retweet it. There's a lot of backlash, but, you know, it's not a it's, terrible idea. No, not at all. You can tell from when people comment on my stories, they're not reading the stories. So that's clear. Right, but just reading the tweet. One thing that The New York Times had a great story a couple of weeks ago saying, and this is really crucial to the Democrat talking point on the election is, is that some Trump supporters believe that he's going to continue to protect pre-existing conditions, you know, even though we have written stories that point out the flaws in that theory. But they, you know, similar to this, you know, pandemic ending, they say, well, he said he's going to. He issued this executive order that he's going to. Republicans have said it and therefore it is the case. And we have pointed out a lot of ways that it is actually not the case. Yes, repeatedly. I think this also speaks to a problem going forward because we're focusing on Trump. And it's not just Trump, it's the American public. And this um, lack of credibility, lack of faith in science, you shouldn't have faith in science. That does, We shouldn't even be using the word faith in science. Science, you can have faith in lots of things in life. Uh, they're not mutually incompatible. Science is science. Science is not faith. So you should have trust in science. No matter what happens in the election next week, if Biden wins, and we, none of us, you know, we're talking on, on the 29th, we don't know, and we may not know by next week, but if Biden wins, and if he tries to do a science-based, national, non-political, just the facts, public health, we're all in this together approach, you've got about, you know, maybe a third of the country that isn't going to believe it. Because they've been told for months that it's a plot, it's a hoax, it's a, a way of hurting them economically, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, even if some of the malevolent stuff that's going around diminishes, it's really going to be hard. You could say, oh, you know, twice as many people trust Tony Fauci as trust Donald Trump. If you look at this poll on, on management of the pandemic, that still means a third of the country doesn't trust Tony Fauci. You know, if he has a 64% approval rating, it's still one out of three doesn't. And, and this is a really heavy lift for whatever comes next, because you need to believe the science, you need to act on the science, and you have to have a different understanding about this virus, that it is an infectious disease. You can't opt out of it. It affects everybody on the planet. That's a really good lead into my next question, um, which is about Scott Gottlieb, the former FDA commissioner in the Trump administration who stepped down before the pandemic and represents the, quote, Republicans who believe in science and public health, quote, wing of the party. Those are that's my quote, who has an op ed in The Wall Street Journal this week with the awesome headline, Winter is coming time for a mask mandate. To be clear, he's only calling for a mandate for two months, but he suggests that the idea is not to create lots of enforcement and penalties, but to, quote, make masks a social and cultural norm, not a political statement. Is it even possible to depoliticize masks at this point? Not overnight. I've been hearing just the last few days, you're starting to hear people talking about seatbelts, where when seatbelts came, people didn't wear seatbelts, didn't like seatbelts, they thought it was big government, all that, you know, most of us were either... And uncomfortable. Right. And most of us either weren't alive or don't remember. But seatbelts were not the norm. Seatbelts became the social norm. It's not that 100% of people wear seatbelts, but seatbelts are the norm. Smoking, social norms have changed around smoking. Social norms have changed around drunken driving. 
But can we, <laughs> changing a social norm takes time. Can we change, this needs a light switch. Can we change the social norms around masking? I think there are ways because we have social media and we have regular media. And we have, I mean, I think that we have tools to get messages out into in, in multimedia ways that we didn't have when seatbelts came out. But, you know, can we do it fast enough to really tamp down this winter? It would require a huge national effort and a huge national reframing. It's, you know, not about my freedom to wear a mask. It's about my obligation to protect my fellow human being. And that's, you know, can that message click? Can you get faith leaders? Can you get celebrities? Can you get athletes? Can you really do it fast? You have to want to. We live in such an individualistic, libertarian, tinged society. You know, I remember when I was in Switzerland looking at their healthcare system, I had a professor actually say this to me. He said, you know, we have a much different mentality uh, in Europe than you have in the United States. And I think we're seeing this really with masks, um, that the idea that it, you know, it impinges this. We went through this with, you know, motorcycle helmets, too. It's not just seatbelts. People, it's like, well, you know, I I preserve my right to bash my head in. Um, but, you know, when you crash your motorcycle and bash your head in, that may cost other people money in the healthcare system, but it doesn't threaten other people's lives immediately the way not wearing a mask does. That's and I the just, issue. You know, I it's a little different. I also think masks, there's a misunderstanding that's permeates pretty deeply that the mask protects you and not other people. And in reality, it's, you know, maybe it offers you some protection, but really it's about protecting your projectiles from going out of your mouth. So I don't think that's made it at all into a lot of people's understanding of this. There are political problems, all sorts of ramifications if you try to sell it this way, but you could really think of masks as pro-life. And <laughs> I mean, that becomes really, I understand it because really problematic to try it, it on both sides, but it is, right? I mean, if that wasn't such a politically loaded term, that's what it is. It saves lives. <laughs> But the other issue is, is, as you say, that Europe doesn't have this, you know, same kind of individualistic nature, but cases are going up there. They're locking down there. So you're going to also have people who say, well, look, you know, other countries are not faring any better than this. So why should we bother inconveniencing ourselves here? So it's it's tricky. I mean, there haven't been really too many countries that have found a successful formula, except maybe islands that can completely lock down and not let anybody in. But other countries are not all as bad as the United States is. I mean, Germany is doing much better. Canada is doing much better. And the countries that are seeing surges in Europe are taking action so that it's not unfettered. They're not talking herd immunity. But I would point out that there is also unrest in those in the European countries that are locking down a second time because they don't want to lock down. The thing that might actually help this, or maybe not, is vaccines. Um, as we were taping last week, the FDA's Outside Advisory Committee was meeting to talk about the agency's standards for judging and approving a potential vaccine. Anna, you wrote about this. What did, what did we learn from the advisory committee? Well, I think their summation at the end was that they're concerned um, about some of the standards the Food and Drug Administration has set for um, emergency authorization for a vaccine. Specifically, the FDA wants a median of two months of follow-up data to look at safety in these um, clinical trial participants. So most of them need two shots. Um, so you get one. A few weeks later, you get another. And then the two-month um, clock starts. That was a very politically charged decision by the FDA. The, you know, Trump said they were trying to make it so he couldn't get a vaccine on the market 
it by the election, which clearly is not going to happen. But the FDA dug in and said, we need this. Well, the advisor said, you actually need more. And, you know, they're they're not comfortable that two months is really going to even be long enough. The funny thing is that was last week. And so this week, um, we're already hearing from Pfizer, who's the front runner in this vaccine race. And they're saying um, in our clinical trial, we actually haven't had enough events yet. So they haven't had enough people get COVID to be able to assess the efficacy of this vaccine. So they're going to have the two-month data, but they're not going to have the efficacy data that lets them even take a look at this to see, you know, they would have their data safety monitoring board do an interim analysis of the efficacy data at the point where they reach enough people getting sick and they aren't doing that. So, you know, Anthony Fauci said yesterday that we're looking at January for a vaccine to um, become available. Pfizer has cast itself as the front runner. We're not really <laughs> sure Pfizer is the front runner. I mean, their CEO has been an outlier in many ways throughout this whole epidemic and in terms of how he's talking about marketing it, it profits, timing, criteria. I mean, everything that Pfizer CEO has said has been sort of out of step with others. Um, and, and that has made he, he's, he's, he's created a perception that they were the front runner. Until they have the data, they are not the front runner. You know, the data is partly science and partly luck, right? If for listeners who don't get it, you have a placebo group, someone who got a fake shot. You have the, the people who got the real shot and you have to compare, you know, how many people who got the placebo get sick versus how many people who got the shot, the real shot are sick. And that shows, oh, 100 people here, two people there shows you it's working. That's sort of, you know, placebos for dummies. People who volunteer to be in a clinical trial for a vaccine, you know, they may be more conscious of the virus and they may be more diligent about masking and social distancing and staying home. So even the placebo group might be less likely to get the disease, which is good for them, but bad for the speed of the study. So until somebody has the data, we don't know who has the data. Yeah. And there was there was another interesting wrinkle, um, you know, when that the advisory committee talked about is the idea that when you do finally get the data, what does the FDA do? Because there are other vaccines still in clinical trials and they want to know what the efficacy there is. But, you know, even Pfizer, you know, if they were to go first, if they did get authorization, they want to give the vaccine to those who are getting a placebo ethically seems like a, a good idea. But in the end, it doesn't get the data that is actually needed for full approval. And then what does it do to those other trials? People could drop out because they want to get the vaccine. Why would you stay in um, if you're told you're getting a placebo? So the FDA is wrestling with this question. And there was some talk about possibly not doing an authorization, they would do it through this expanded access program, which would just be a bureaucratic nightmare. I mean, they, they usually do placebo versus a drug or a vaccine, but I suppose you could design the trials that it, you, you do want to give people. If we think the second generation or second wave of vaccines is going to be better than the first, you might be able to design trials where you know somebody who did get the Pfizer or did get the Johnson Johnson or did get Moderna or did get whatever we get in the next couple of months, something else to test it against an existing vaccine. Well, yeah, it's, it's, right. clearly a, it's clearly a bioethical minefield, um, and I'm going to add another layer to it, because maybe even the bigger question than when we will get a vaccine is how will we distribute it? 
Most everybody agrees it should go first to frontline health workers and other first responders. But then who and who's going to decide? This has the potential to be an even sort of bigger quagmire than just the sort of race to actually find a vaccine that's effective. States are beginning to states have filed plans with the CDC and some of them have become public. I don't believe we have access to all 50 yet. There does seem to be, through the National Academy of Science and other groups, there does seem to be a rough consensus, which we do not know that all states will follow. But there does seem to be a rough consensus that it's um, first responders and, and uh, first responder medical personnel and other, you know, like EMTs, um, nursing home and assisted living would be sort of the first two groups. And then you go through other people with health risks, essential workers, uh, which would include many people in, in lower income and groups and minority groups who are disproportionately in the, in the essential workers. So there is sort of a hierarchy that's emerging. It's not precise. You know, is Texas going to make meat packers number two? And, you know, New Jersey, I don't think there were any meat packers in New Jersey, but if there were, you know, they'll make them number three. I mean, th- there's sort of a general hierarchy that's not identical in all the states. We don't yet know how consistent that will be across the states. We don't know how many exceptions to the rule there will be. We don't know how much outreach that will actually make an attempt to reach certain groups. We do know there is a plan now to actually um, immunize people within the nursing homes. The retail pharmacy chains are being lined up to go into You don't make the nursing home go to the pharmacy. You're going to have the pharmacy go to the nursing home. I don't want to go to the pharmacy. Well, my mother had to go to the ER four times. She was exposed to a rabid bat. Like, where do you oh, want an 80, you know, a woman in her 80s to be for three hours, four times a month? Not in the ER. Yeah. It's fine. It's over. But you'll probably <laughs> be hearing from this every time I'm on because it was so upsetting. Where yeah. is she that oh. she went to a rabid bat? The bat came into her house oh, and no. she oh. called the animal control and they came at two in the morning. And she says, why are you coming at two in the morning? I thought you'd come tomorrow. And they said, oh, we're having a lot of rabid ones this year. And so that was the end. Oh, they, they caught it in autopsy. It was rabid. She's fine. It's okay. I'm more traumatized than she is. I bet. That's that's another story. Go ahead. Anybody else on vaccines before we move on? Well, I was just going to say the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has an immunization panel that kind of gets the last say in some of this. And we don't know how specific they'll be. So, you know, will they say these are the essential workers? These are who we consider essential or will they just say essential workers and this is left up to the states? So what they're going to do is it's called ASIP, the Advisory Committee for Immunization Practices, and they'll meet basically like within 24 hours of the Food and Drug Administration authorizing a vaccine. And they said they'll call an emergency meeting and they will get these recommendations out there, um, which are really important for for reimbursement um, on these vaccines as well. But I don't believe, Anna, you might know more than this. Any of, any of you might know more than this. I don't believe they're binding on the states, but I may be wrong. I mean, I don't think that if ASIP says this is your priority number one, this is priority t- number two, this is priority number three, this is priority number four, I don't think a state has to do that. But I, I also don't want to assert that as fact because we haven't had a situation like this, the shortages that I've covered. My belief is that states have leeway. But my certainty is not that states have leeway. And if any of you want to correct me, feel free. Yeah, I'm, I think that depends on kind of what I was talking about, too. I'm not sure how prescriptive they'll be or whether the states will get some leeway within what their recommendations And are. how do you define it? Is there a first responder, any doctor in your community? Well, you know, if you're, I don't want to pick on a dermatologist, but if you're a dermatologist in private practice who hasn't stepped foot in the hospital in 10 months, Arguably, you're not a first responder, whereas if you're a respiratory therapist, even if you're not a doctor and you're in the ICU 
I would argue that you are a first responder. So people who work in, for, in the ICU, in the emergency room, who are not even necessary medical personnel who are support are at risk in a way that, you know, a suburban doctor doing telemedicine is not. All right. Well, that is we're, there, clearly we will talk about this more, too. But I want to talk about the Affordable Care Act. No, not the lawsuit that's coming before the Supreme Court. We will talk about that more next week. But open enrollment for the ACA plan starts on Sunday, which I can't believe I had literally forgotten about until Tammy reminded me. So thank you, Tammy. Um, it's really important this year, more important than it has been the last couple of years, right? Yeah. And I think a lot of people may actually be thinking that they can't sign up because they're hearing all of this. Oh, Amy Coney Barrett is going to take down the ACA and the Supreme Court is going to hear this next week or sorry, on November 10th. And they may say, well, I'm you know, why should I sign up? I'm just going to lose my coverage. But I think a lot of experts that I've spoken to say that that is not the case, that people still should sign up no matter when the Supreme Court rules, whatever they rule. They are very unlikely to strip away coverage in the middle of the year from people. Plus, of course, these uh, when you sign up for health care coverage, you're signing up for an annual contract. So it is very important that people get coverage. And now the Affordable Care Act, I mean, we haven't seen huge spikes yet, but this may be the time that we do. We have a lot of people who are out of work and lost their job-based coverage. And this may be the time that they say, oh, well, you know, I should actually go and uh, sign up for, for coverage for 2021 for me and my family. Of course, the problem is the Trump administration is continuing not to fund outreach and marketing. So during the Obama administration at this time of year, we had huge campaigns to say, oh, if you don't have insurance, now is the time to sign up. And unfortunately, we may find that people miss the deadline because they're just not aware that it's here. But the ACA continues to be an alternative. Their premiums dropped a little bit for next year. They've dropped 2%. That means over the last three years, they've declined a total of 8%. And there's actually more choice out there this year as well. And there are more people who not only have lost their insurance, and we don't have the exact numbers, but we know it's big because of job losses. But they're also COVID, as we've said before, is not just an acute disease. It is turning out for some large subsection of people who get it. It's also a chronic disease. It's not just my hospital bill or my testing bill. It's, you know, what kind of health problems am I going to have? And we don't know whether this is months, years or the rest of your life. So the fact that even health reporters sort of forgot about it, it's like a stealth sign-up season. Not only are they not spending money to promote it, the administration has cut outreach funds. They're not even doing the free stuff. You know, they're not doing, we're not hearing PSAs. We're not hearing, you know, tr think of a, think of President Trump started tweeting, hey, you know, all you folks out there, get covered. You know, it, it wouldn't reach everybody, but it would create an awareness among his base, which is part of the population that needs coverage. And of course, you know, this overlaps with the Medicare open enrollment. And there's tons and tons and tons of paid advertising for Medicare open enrollment because there's all these private Medicare plans who make a lot of money off Medicare Advantage uh, and Medicare supplement plans. So they have an incentive to advertise, whereas, you know, there's more companies actually offering Affordable Care Act coverage than there have been. But it's not nearly as profitable as the Medicare uh, the Medicare products. So they don't advertise them, you know, every like every third ad is, you know, it's Medicare open enrollment. I mean, we're just not seeing 
seeing that for the ACA. Um, I would add that the experts that I've talked to say what's likely to happen with the Supreme Court is that, yes, you, you are signing an annual contract and the insurer is required to give you coverage, but the subsidies could go away instantly if the Supreme Court rules against the, the law, in which case people would be faced with premiums that they clearly couldn't afford since the vast majority of people who get ACA coverage also get federal subsidies. But the, the other other thing to remember is that the Supreme Court isn't going to decide this case the day they hear it on November 10th. Um, in all likelihood, we won't get a Supreme Court decision into well in to 2021. So it certainly would be a good thing to have coverage, you know, that, that, that you know would last, you know, at least that long. And also one one would assume that Congress would want to do something if it, you know, there are some easy fixes to this. They could put the individual mandate penalty back at a dollar and that would make the case go away. I mean, that there's an awful lot of you know, suppositions about who's going to be the president, who's going to be in charge of Congress. But, you know, people people should not not sign up for the ACA because of what the Supreme Court is doing. It's kind of the the, the short version of this, right? And, and the Supreme Court can also stay and say, you know, OK, the ACA was invalid, but that doesn't mean that the subsidies have to go away immediately. They can say that they can go away at the end of the year. So I don't think they can, actually. I think if they find it unconstitutional, I don't think they can stay it. Mm. Um, I think the lower courts can, but I don't think the Supreme Court can. I've been told it's unlikely, but, you know, they'll do what they want. Interesting, because this attorney I've spoken to says that it is that that's probably what would happen. But that's nobody what, knows what right. system. I mean, yeah, that's I mean, basically, nobody. Usually knows. we don't get these really big cases decided until June. But in this case, I've heard speculation from lawyers. It'll be March. Again, we don't know. Um, but partly because of this uncertainty and people needing coverage, making personal coverage decisions, and it, it affects at least 20 million Americans. It affects everybody because it's not just, as we've pointed out here, it's not just people who are going onto the Obamacare market to get insurance. Those of us who get insurance at work have certain protections that we would not have had without the ACA, annual caps, keeping our kids covered, blah, 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 blah. I mean, we talked about it before. We could talk about it then. And we'll talk about right? it again. But I mean, it, 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 the entire American healthcare system is shaped by the ACA. I've heard March, but it's just speculation because they'll, you know, yeah. who knows? There, it also depends on if, you know, what, what, how much unanimity there is, if they were dis to dismiss it on standing, which is sort of less politically difficult to do. And if they just decide the people who brought the case don't have the right to bring this case, it might go faster than if it's a big ideological battle about the constitutionality with a mandate that's dividing the court. And we may have some hint after the oral arguments, or we may not. Um, all right. So we will come back to that next week. But I do want to point out that we're now hearing, we're not hearing about broccoli anymore. We're hearing about Jenga. <laughs> right. <laughs> what can you, what can you remove and keep the entire law? That's standard? true. I like right. broccoli, so I never objected to broccoli. If it was okra, I would have had a whole different attitude. Yeah, I like broccoli, and I really don't like Jenga, but that's that's a whole <laughs> that's a whole nother thing. All right, well, let us talk about prescription drug importation for a few minutes. Um, you may not remember importation, but it was going to reduce drug prices by allowing Americans to buy cheaper drugs from other countries, particularly Canada. Why are drugs cheaper there? Because other countries have price controls, and the U.S. by and large does not. Anyway, Florida proposed a kind of complicated plan to allow residents to buy Canadian drugs, except, well, Tammy, this is your extra credit this week. Why don't you explain? Well, I mean, this is a really interesting situation that we have here because people have been talking, particularly Democrats, have been talking about importing drugs from Canada for decades. Typically, our federal government, HHS, and both parties, the secretary has said that it we can't be proved safe. It, you know, it's not necessarily going to save money. So it's never happened. But the Trump administration has actually pushed 
through what they say is allowing drug importation, but it's not quite that simple. Actually, what they are allowing is states to apply to have drug importation uh, programs approved. And none have yet. There have been several states that have applied, but none have actually been approved. But what's interesting is, is that Florida has been, you know, the front runner of this and they've submitted a plan to HHS. However, as uh, your colleague, Julie Phil Gelowitz, who's a great reporter um, and has been following this closely, had a story this week that said actually that it's kind of like if you build it, they will come. Well, I guess they didn't come because Florida actually put out a, a bid to design an importation plan and no private firms actually took them up on this $30 million contract. So this is going to set back their effort as Phil writes by several months. You know, if it happens at all, we'll see what goes on in the future. But, you know, part of the reason may be because the final rules from HHS had not yet been issued. And now that they have been, there may be some tailoring of the Florida program and then maybe some private firms will actually be interested, but we'll see. So, yeah, I mean, I just, I've been covering this for, gosh, almost 25 years now. I mean, I have file cabinets full of this stuff and I'm just, I find this so ironic that, you know, and, and you're right, Tammy, it's been bipartisan. It's been Democrats and Republicans like, well, we're, we don't want to do our own price controls, but we're perfectly happy to let Americans take advantage of other countries' price controls. Um, and, Many, many people, again, on a bipartisan basis have said, this is not a great or workable idea. I mean, Canada does not have enough drugs to supply the the rest of the United States. We're, what, 10 times bigger than Canada. I mean, you just have to do basic arithmetic to see that. Um, well, and also so Canada I'm, does not want to let this out. I mean, the other point is, is that if this actually does go through... Canada is going to take some measures to prevent this. Bottom line, this is likely not going to be the answer to high drug prices, right? No, although, again, if you hear from the president, he'll say, you know, importation is now happening. You know, importation, is, we've we've passed the drug importation. All right. Well, we have another extra credit I thought we should all weigh in on. And it's an excerpt in The New Yorker of former President Barack Obama's forthcoming memoir. Um, and the excerpt is his view of the fight for the ACA. So very timely this week. Joanne, tell us about it. Um, the headline of The New Yorker is a president looks back at his toughest fight by Barack Obama. It's got a magnificent photo at the beginning. You should all click on it just to see that. I thought my favorite part was actually sort of the more personal parts where he was writing about during the summer of was 2009. That, when was Tea Party summer? 2009, right? He wanted to do town halls, you know, to counteract the Tea Party meetings. And he also wanted to take his kids on the kind of road trip across America that he had done as a child. But when you're the president of the United States, it's a little hard to just sort of like pop out for ice cream with your kids. And so he talks about like how they were able to sort of create a presidential family road tripish thing. You know, he would do the, you know, the Grand Canyon with his kids and then run off and go do a town hall on healthcare. Um, but there was an exchange at the very beginning. I mean, there's a lot about Teddy Kennedy who really inspired Obama to make this his top priority after the economic stimulus. And there was an exchange, I think it was David Axelrod and Rahm Emanuel, where we're warning Obama, you know, this is this is third rail. This is, we've been trying this for a hundred years. This, you know, it, we understand why you want to do it. We think you should do it, but just be careful because if this, you know, you're really risking that you're, if you lose, your presidency is damaged. And his response was, well, let's not lose then. So <laughs> depending on the age and memory quality of our people tuning in on this. Some of it will seem familiar to you. Some of it will seem brand new. And it's a great read. It's a beautiful read, actually, because the personal stuff really interwoven with the policy fight. I feel like it's a good time to remind people, really, 
how hard it was to get this through and how many times it almost crashed and burned. I mean, you know, people like to say, oh, you can just, you know, if the Democrats get elected, they can just, you know, go in and do this stuff. It's like not so much. Yeah. And and also a reminder that it wasn't just getting Republicans on board because they they ended up failing that. They had trouble getting all the Democrats on board. Democrats can be an unruly bunch. Yes. <laughs> it was insightful hearing him talk about some of the, uh, the I guess, like deals they made with Democrats um, that it, I think it was at the Cornhusker kickback and the Louisiana purchase and, and those yeah. things that they that they had to Harry Reid had to uh, come up with. And this the interaction between him and Obama and Obama being the eternal optimist um, and Harry Reid kind of being the, the more cynical deal maker. I was going to say it's a good reminder that Biden says he's going to pass a public option as though it's going to happen tomorrow when right. if they take both houses. And that was one thing that failed in 2010 and will encounter a lot of opposition again. Absolutely. I would say, and please let us not have back to back to back snowstorms again, which complicated that even more than it was already complicated. All right. That is the news for this week. Now we will play our Bill of the Month interview with KHN's Anna Almandrala, and then we will come back and do the rest of our extra credits. are pleased to welcome to the podcast my KHN colleague, Anna Almandrela, who wrote the latest KHN NPR Bill of the Month. Welcome, Anna. Hi, nice to be here. So tell us about this month's patient, who she is, what kind of medical care she got, and how she followed all of the advice we usually give when patients are scheduling elective procedures that can get expensive. So Tiffany Chill, she's a 49-year-old mom of two and a real estate agent. She lives in Temecula, California, which is in the county of San Diego. She was dealing with heavy, unusual periods, and her gynecologist recommended that she have a simple outpatient procedure to remove some polyps. However, the doctor also said, this isn't urgent, so if you want to wait a little bit, then we can also do that. You're not in danger of anything at all. Tiffany is a savvy person. She normally would shop around, and she said she travels back and forth between California and China often to visit her mom, so she was also open to getting procedures done in China where it's cheaper. But when she called the hospital where her doctor was affiliated to see how much it would cost, the hospital billing department appeared to be giving her what she thought was a discount. Tiffany knew from an earlier procedure in the year that her copay coinsurance was 30%. But the billing department said that she only had to pay 20% of the procedure. Tiffany was like, are you sure? I know that it's 30%. She actually called back a second time to to clarify it. And they were like, yes, yes, it's 20%. So then on the day of the surgery, she was asked to pay the 20% coinsurance that she was quoted over the phone, which was $1,656.10, as well as her um, deductible, which was $334. And she thought, you know, barring complications, this is the end of it. I'm done paying for this surgery. And she didn't have any complications, right? No, she didn't have any complications. Uh, Procedure was over in about half an hour, and she walked out feeling fine with her husband. And then the bill came, as they say. Yes, the bill came. It was for the remainder of what should have been her 30% coinsurance, uh, what she had suspected that she really did have to pay, and it was an additional $933.87. Now, it turns out that she can prove that the hospital told her she'd only have to pay 20%, but... That's not really how it worked out. Right. Um, you know, the the patient advocates and the insurance experts that I spoke to about the story said, no matter what a hospital tells you at the time or, or before the surgery, it's not really their responsibility 
to get the numbers right for you. It's your responsibility as the holder of an insurance policy to go back to your insurance company and verify, hey, am I supposed to pay 30% for this or is 20% okay? That supposedly is what Tiffany should have done. However, that didn't sit right with Tiffany and also didn't sit right with the hospital, actually. When I called Palomar Health about her case, they said, yes, we made a mistake quoting her 20%. We are not authorized to offer patients discounts before an operation at all. That's not how we do things. So they took responsibility of that misquote and forgave the extra 10% that she owed. And, and just to be clear, I know when people um, don't have insurance and they're paying their own way, they tell you that you should go and negotiate with the provider. And frequently, if you're willing to pay cash up front, they will give you a substantial discount. So she wasn't completely off base going to the people who were going to set the price to ask them what the price would be, right? Right. Um, people who normally get discounts are those, as you said, who are paying cash or credit because they don't have insurance. Often these prices that are set for people without insurance are so much higher than what um, a hospital would normally bill an insurance company that hospitals are, are very you know willing to discount because they know that these prices are inflated, let's say. I spoke to Paul Ginsburg, who's the director of the USC Brookings Schaefer Initiative for Health Policy. And he said, you know, sometimes if there's like a long-standing doctor-patient relationship and let's say the doctor knows that you just lost your job or you're going through a hard time, maybe they might, as a one-time courtesy, forgive a part of a copay or the entire copay. But generally, it's not standard to um, offer discounted copays as a way to attract a business. And at some point, I think it's illegal, right? Yeah, I mean, you could argue that it would be a fraudulent practice because they're not, you know, charging patients what they say that they're going to charge to the insurance companies. So let's go back to the beginning. You're going to get non-emergency medical care that might be pricey. Mm -hmm. What should you do to find out how much it's going to cost you? Whatever quotes that you get from either a surgical center or a hospital, you should go back to your insurance policy and say, is this correct? So basically, you need to check with both your insurance company and your healthcare provider. Right, because technically, it's like the healthcare provider isn't responsible for mistakes and misquotes, even though they're the ones that are charging the prices and doing the procedure. Although in this case, we should say it worked out okay for Tiffany, right? Mm -hmm. She does say, though, that the mistake that they made with the copay quote, prevented her from truly shopping around. She thought that she was getting a deal. That's why she stopped shopping around. She would have gone to a cheaper surgical center because she knows that those bring the prices down a lot more than a hospital procedure. It's, you do the best you can. The health system is a mess. We'll keep working on it. <laughs> Anna Almondrella, thank you very thank much. You. Okay, we are back. It's time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week. We think others should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org slash what the health. So Tammy and Joanne have already done theirs. Anna, what do you have for us this week? Um, so mine comes from the Wall Street Journal. The, it's a health agency scraps coronavirus ad campaign leaving Santa Claus in the cold. This one was just such a fun, hilarious read because the idea was that HHS now, the spokesman who is now on um, on medical leave, was going to give a deal to Santa performers um, and Mrs. Claus and the elves too, that um, they could get the vaccine early, whatever vaccine is authorized. They could jump to the front of the line along with healthcare workers 
if they would basically do ad campaigns, kind of support the vaccine while they're out and about um, doing these things and and do specific events and things like that. Being Santa. Being Santa, (laughs) yes. And that campaign, (laughs) or or an alpha or Mrs. Claus, um, that campaign has been scrapped. But it was was actually something that was brought up by the Fraternal Order of Real Bearded Santas themselves um, at the first, not the the ad campaign, but just the idea that they should be essential um, because we don't want Christmas 2020 um, to to die along with Santa's not being able to go out into the public and and do their thing. They brought it up at the CDC immunization panel um, back during the summer that I listened to. And I wrote a teeny little blurb about it and talked to Rick Irwin, who's who's the head of that fraternal order, um, just because it was so hilarious. But then this ad campaign comes up and has now been killed. Um, So the Wall Street Journal did a really good in-depth look at what went into this. They even had a recording of the call between the HHS official who, you know, had this brainchild and um, and the Santa performers. So going back to our prior conversation, we did neglect that. Like, who are the who are the first priority? It's (laughs) essential workers. Excuse me. Frontline medical workers, nursing home residents, Santa elves. No longer. No No longer. No longer. Some of the elves were apparently politically suspect. (laughs) (laughs) Also, it looks like we won't have a vaccine in time for Christmas. That is true. I think that's maybe maybe next year we'll have this discussion. Easter Bunny. (laughs) Yeah, Easter Bunny. My story is from Abby Goodnow at the New York Times. It's called A Chance to Expand Medicaid Rallies Democrats in Crucial North Carolina. It's about how voters are being driven to the polls by the possibility of flipping the state legislature from Republican to Democrat. And if that happens, maybe letting North Carolina expand Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act. They're one of the 12 states that has not yet done that, Um, which, of course, is an exact flip of how this usually works. Voters tend to be driven by the top of the ticket, not the ballot lines that are lower down. But this seems to be a case of Democrats taking a page from Republicans in years past who used to try to get controversial ballot initiatives added in presidential election years to drive up Republican turnout. Um, North Carolina is a toss-up in the presidential race and has a super competitive Senate race. So it's already a state I plan to watch closely next week. And now I have to watch for its state legislature, too. So that is our show for this week. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us, too. Special thanks, as always, to our ace producer, Francis Ying, who makes us all sound good, even when we're in different places. Also, as always, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org, or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. Tammy? I'm at, at Luby, L-U-H-B-Y. Anna? At Anna Edney. Joanne? At Joanne Kennan. We will be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy. <laughs>